After Jesus had fed the 5,000 near the beginning of the book of John, everybody was following him, and he said, you're only, you're only following me because I filled everybody's stomachs. Uh, obviously a great paraphrase on my part. And they said, well, Moses uh, fed us in the desert, fed our people in the desert uh, through manna. And then Jesus had to tell them that, uh, yeah, that's true, but I have come to provide you not manna lasts for a day, not temporary food, not food that just feeds the flesh, but eternal food. And so this uh, was taken in reference to a meal that we refer to many times, the Last Supper that Jesus had before he went to the cross. And so it really does represent a meal. It was during the Passover meal. And these elements, which before this time stood for the, the uh, sacrificial blood of a lamb that was placed on the doorposts in Egypt as God led the Jews out of captivity in Egypt, 400 years of slavery through Moses. He gave Moses instructions to tell the people, find a lamb without blemish, keep him in your house for a few days, then I want you to slaughter him, and then I want you to paint his blood over the doorposts, over the, the lintel and the side posts of your home, and then when the angel of death comes through, that night in Egypt, the firstborn of everyone will die except those houses that are covered by the blood. And that's where the term Passover comes from. The angel of death passed over those houses. And so Jesus served this, uh, was in the, this Passover meal that was traditionally done in remembrance of that great deliverance God did for his people from the most mighty power on earth, the Egyptians at that time. And how he delivered his people out of there without weapons, without gunshots, without rebellion. Pharaoh finally said, get out of here when the life of his firstborn son was taken by the angel of death on that night of the first Passover meal. And so since that time, Jews had celebrated this once a year. And so Jesus sits down with his disciples and said, this Passover meal is now going to change. And as you take these elements, this bread, which used to represent the bread of affliction, the Jews had to flee so quickly that night uh, and get ready to leave and get out of Egypt that God said, you don't have time for the bread to rise. So you're going to make this bread without yeast. And therefore, it will be a flat bread. It will be unleavened. And so the bread that Moses took and what we have here, it looks like matzah, unleavened bread, represents that quick release God did. When God moved, it was quickly. And then the cup, he said that just as the blood was placed over the houses of the Jews who were precious to God, so this cup represents my blood now shed for you so that you too will be passed over that you too will not have to die for your sins, that my blood has covered you, and that even though you die, you shall live, he says in John 11. And he says, if you believe in me, you will never die. And that unleavened bread, he said, this is my body broken for you, and he broke it into little pieces. That's why when you come to get a piece of this, it's been broken off of one big piece of matzah in these little pieces representing the broken body of the Lord on the cross that night, that next day that he died after the Passover meal. 
And then he answered all their um, questions like, uh, he's saying, you've got to eat of me and you've got to drink of me. And they were all confused. And even the Roman Empire at the time of the early church heard about these, this communion, this Eucharist, this Last Supper celebrated in Christian worship services. And so the early Christians were called cannibals. They were referred to, we can find that written in old Roman documents, that they thought they were cannibals because they talked about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ. And so everybody was confused by these words. And so Jesus, near the end of this discourse in John 6, says, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Sure sounds like cannibalism. And so you see, could you imagine hearing this for the first time? It's like, what is he talking about? Eating his, drinking his blood and eating his flesh. So on hearing this, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say to them, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And from this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And so he looked around at who was left, the 12 apostles, and he says, You do not want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Hard teaching. If Jesus was out to build a church, he sure went about it wrong. He taught words that made people leave. He could have sugarcoated this whole thing. But the key to me in this is he said, you're thinking of this physically. They said, this is a hard teaching. Who could receive this? Drinking your blood, eating your flesh. He says, you're thinking in the natural, materialistic realm of the actual flesh and blood. But he said, the words I speak to you are spirit, and it's the spirit that brings life. So what this is to us is a spiritual meal that these elements represent his broken body, his shed blood, and it shows to us and reminds us 
that we get every hunger satisfied in our lives, every thirst that we thirst for, for identity, for significance, for a life that counts. We get those hungers and thirsts satisfied by following Jesus and in a way, metaphorically, eating of him every day, worshiping him, loving him. And then as often as we meet, as determined by the local body, in this church it's been determined by once a month, that we remind ourselves of what he's done for us and that, yes, he is our true food. The people who just ate manna, that was sent from God, miraculously from heaven, just like Jesus was. But they ate and eventually died. But he says, I have come that you may have life and life abundantly. And if you remind yourself that you're really feasting on me daily, all hungers and thirsts in your life are satisfied by me. You will live forever. And so these words are spirit, and the spirit gives life. So let me pray. And as you come forward, as Jackie leads us in worship, to partake of these elements, do this in remembrance of Jesus. And may he be your true meal forever. No matter how big that turkey is looming before you in a couple weeks, this is a much better meal, an eternal meal, metaphorically representing that we feast with Jesus and of Jesus. So, Lord, thank you for your obedience. And, Lord, we know this was a decision you made, for you even asked the Father to, to remove this suffering, this crucifixion, if at all possible, to remove the cup that was laid before you the next day that you spread out the Passover meal with your disciples and you changed it forever. But you chose the next morning or that evening, Lord, to be arrested, to ask the disciples to put the swords away. You even healed the ear that was cut off by Peter. And Lord, you willingly went to the cross. And Lord, has been said so eloquently by others, it wasn't the Romans who nailed you to the cross. It was your love that spread out your arms and took our sins through the very core of your hands and feet and the spear in your sign. That we may have fellowship with you, feast with you, eat and drink of you all the days of our lives. Thank you, Lord that there isn't a hunger we will have in our lives. There isn't a thirst we will have in the spiritual realm, in the emotional realm, in the psychological realm that can't be met by you. So, Lord, as we take today, we give you glory. And in the spirit of this month of Thanksgiving, this becomes our Eucharist, our thanksgiving to you for what you've done. Bless this spiritual meal for us, Lord. May we grow because of it. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Morning. Thought I'd use a little stool today. I'm wifeless, and so I feel weak. Um, um, Carol, some of us, thank you for asking. My wife Carolyn is in Seattle. She flew out middle last week to help babysit grandchildren while our daughter and her husband are uh, going to a business meeting, and so she gets to be grandma there. And, and uh, I think she's going to our second son's church, um, 
And maybe I think it reminded you, telling you this, that three of our sons are pastors. Two of them pastor in the Seattle area and one in Billings. And so she gets to go to the second son's church today called New Hope Seattle. And uh, it's always uh, a thrill when we get to visit other churches where our families go and attend and serve at. So she's having great time there, and I, I'm struggling even to eat or uh, to, to put on clean clothes or whatever. I just, uh, I just had to make sure my, if you see my shirt, if I've missed a button and my collar's out of whack, it's because she's gone. Okay. So, uh, Mr. Dearly, we've been in partnership and ministry for about 45 years. Everything we've done, we've done together, and so that's been a, a real blessing in my life. Um, I wanted to, uh, today to continue, and Jonah, before you do, I just want you to know one of the privileges that Carol and I have is on Fridays leading a group at our church in Billings called Pillars. Pillars are mostly uh, retired aged people. Some younger people come. And it's uh, the reason why probably more don't come out of that age, because it's on Friday morning and people are working. And uh, there's about 80 to 90 people gather. And it's, uh, it's a great time to teach the word. These people, uh, many of them, we have a lot of 90-year-olds and plus in there. Uh, one lady uh, just turned 88 and was so excited that she was still skiing. Uh, and she came last year with a broken collarbone um, at 88. But uh, there's some... Man, there's people in good shape there. And uh, uh, we have one 90-year-old that gets up and gives us a humorous joke every week. And she's a great delivery. As a matter of fact, I think we're going to sign her up for America's Got Talent um, and try to send her there. Uh, her timing is impeccable. So she shared this, uh, this joke on uh, this last Friday. So I'll share it with you. Um, she said this person was having this um, a paranoia and not able to sleep at night, and went to a psychiatrist, therapist for counseling, and as they uh, laid down on the proverbial couch there, uh, tell me all your problems in your life, the uh, therapist finally said, well, what's really the problem? Why aren't you sleeping? He said, well, I can't get over this uh, feeling that somebody's living under my bed. And, of course, it just scares me all night, I just fitfully, once in a while, not off, but I'm scared that something or someone's living under my bed. And uh, the psychiatrist said, well, okay, we're going to spend the next weeks together um, exploring that, finding out the source of that. That's probably just a symptom. We've got to find out where that fear in you, that paranoia comes from. We'll go back to your childhood, and so I'll see you Next week, and by the way, here's my bill, $300. And so a uh, person kind of gulped and uh, said, okay, and uh, never came back, never made the reappointment. And so uh, in the grocery store one day, this therapist saw this person, this man with this paranoia about somebody sleeping on his bed and said, you know, John, I've been really worried about you. I know we started to try to help cure you of this so that you can get some sleep it's going to ruin your health. Uh, we've got to get to the bottom of this. Why haven't I seen you back? So, well, I couldn't, ex couldn't really afford your steep prices. Plus, uh, the bartender, if I can use that word in church, the bartender solved it for $10. And the therapist went, for $10? Well, what did the bartender know that I didn't know? Bartender just told me, cut the legs off your bed. So... 
right? That's an easy solution. So sometimes we're looking for a rough solution, a major solution, when it's very simple. Just cut the legs off your bed, then nothing can be living under there, right? Um, so, but of course, I can't do it like if I was 90 years old. Wait a few years, and then I will tell it again, and maybe you'll laugh more. All right. Uh, we've been taking this journey through the book of Jonah, and uh, it's been, uh, it always convicts me. It always, uh, during the week, some opportunity comes up to remember something about Jonah that we went over here on Sunday. It's, uh, I think it reveals the heart of God in so many ways. Some, uh, some scholars have called it, and maybe it's not apparent right now, but maybe next week when we discuss the last chapter, why this is the parable of the prodigal son of the Old Testament. Because Jonah, in many ways, is an exact, it's an exact story that kind of parallels the story of the prodigal son, which we just sang that song about, the, oh, the everlasting love of God, I don't deserve it. We sing that. That song comes directly out of Luke 15, the three parts to that parable there, the parable of lost sheep, parable of lost coin, and the parable of lost son, which we many times have renamed to be the prodigal son. And, uh, and Jonah, in many ways, parallels those things, and maybe it'll become obvious to you, or if not, we'll discuss that a little later on. We're in Jonah chapter 3 this week. Uh, we went over his repentance prayer in 2. He was thrown overboard. We talked about grace. All of us uh, deserve to die, be thrown overboard. Jonah didn't quarrel with the sailors nor with God that he deserved death because he was disobedient, running from God. I hope this thing doesn't keep uh, popping here. Let me uh, move it down a little bit. Oop. And now it's going to take only two hours to get it back under. Um, did you ever think you can hear fingerprints? All right. Let's see if that works a little better. Um, can you still hear me? Is that right? Okay. So, uh, and then secondly, we learned about the grace that we see in this uh, prayer of Jonah in chapter 2. We see the grace is um, we're powerless to save ourselves. Jonah was sinking, and he said, I went down to the depths of the mountains, the roots of the mountains, which was uh, poetry of those days that said it's all over. There's no way to deliver myself from this. And then thirdly, we see that God pro provided a miraculous uh, salvation for him in this fish. And so it parallels the grace that God gives us all if we acknowledge these three things. That, And, well, during this descent into the ocean and, or in the belly of the fish, he said, but I will want to look at your mercy seat of God again in your temple. And the mercy seat is where God covered the sins of the people by the blood of of the high priest that came in once a year, and on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, on this gold lid, he sprinkled the blood of a sacrificial lamb there to, for the forgiveness of sins of the people. And so that's what grace is. We all deserve to be forever banished from the presence of the Lord, defined in Scripture as hell. Secondly, we are powerless to correct that ourselves. And thirdly, God has provided for us a miraculous redemption and salvation at great cost to himself, that something had to die, blood had to be shed for us to be redeemed, and of course, that's his son. So we've seen this great prayer and the repentance and how Jonah turned around. We saw a little flicker in there that he still has, he's a little cocky, 
said, at least I'm not as bad as those Ninevites. I'm not worshiping all these. I just disobeyed you. It's not like I'm worshiping all these false gods. And we can see in there that Jonah's heart still needs to be tweaked in a big way because he doesn't understand he lives by the grace that everyone lives, lives by in the world. None of us are greater or less sinners than others. We are all disqualified from the presence of God. So let's go to Jonah chapter 3 now and read this a little bit. Then the word of the Lord... Oh, can I pray first that the Lord would just open this to us? Lord, thank you for your word that it is the imperishable seed. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, you have said in your word that your word stands forever. It, it is an imperishable seed that goes deep into our lives, our hearts, and Lord begins to sprout and grow and may it produce yield 60 hundredfold, Lord, for you, and may it grow in us that we grow spiritually and become more like you and know your heart even better. In Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, come and show us miraculous things from your word. Amen. Amen. All right. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah, so obviously the great thing there is that uh, the second time, all right, the God of second chances. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. What's sackcloth like? Anybody know? Burlap. burlap. Scratchy, extra scratchy burlap. Not the nice burlap you see the coffee beans come in and that they put up in coffee houses, because that feels pretty soft. This is like very primitive burlap. Scratches, itches, can make you bleed. It's to kind of do penance. It's to kind of show i got to make myself hurt to show how bad my sin is. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Also another symbol of repentance. You throw dust over yourself. Next slide. Verse 7. This is the proclamation he, the king of Nineveh, issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. A total fast. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with, the compa and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And we will find out in chapter 4 that this is Jonah's worst fears, that they would repent. And that's why he didn't want to go there in the first place, because they were the hated enemy and they deserved to be judged. And this is what Jonah wrestles with in the rest of the book. 
So let's talk a little bit about some things in chapter 3 that are pretty significant. We'll go to the next slide. A question. I just want to ask you, maybe you want to answer just out loud. That's great. Or just to yourself. If you were Jonah, how would you have felt when the word of the Lord came to you a second time? Anybody would share how that would make you feel? Oh, no, not again. Say that again. Okay. Obey. Yes. Say it a little louder. Guilty. All right. Yep. Oh, boy. This just brings back my sin to me. This is the first thing I disobeyed. Right. Hope. Wow. He asked me once, but he's asking me again. God still wants to have interaction with me. I am a prophet of Israel. He had a high standing. That's what was so horrible about chapter 1 when he runs from the Lord. Of, of anybody that should know God and be obedient to him, it would be a prophet. But now he's going, wow, God hasn't disqualified me from speaking his word and doing his will. Anything else? Yes. Drats. Thought I was off the hook. Wouldn't have to do that. Thought he'd forget about it. He just spit me out on the beach, and I'm covered in whale slime, but I've cleaned up now, and he's probably picked somebody else to do that. And uh, all of a sudden, drat, got to go there again. Those are all good things to ponder. Put yourself in the story. Think about if you were Jonah, and that's what we're all supposed to do, see, see Jonah in all of us. Because uh, just like the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son, that's in all of us. We can have great things and squander it. And we can also be like the eldest son in, the, in that parable of the lost son. The eldest son said, I've done everything right for you. Why haven't you given me a party? Which is a wrong attitude too. And so uh, in all of this, hopefully we can see ourselves. All right, let's go to the next slide. Now, okay, just a quick reminder. I've showed you this picture almost every week. But just to get it again. He got the word of the Lord here in Israel. He was a prophet to Israel. He went down to Joppa, got in a ship to go to Tarsus. He decided to take a trip 2,500 miles when the trip to Nineveh was only 550 miles. All right, we'll go on. Now, it is speculated that this 550-mile journey from Joppa to Nineveh took Jonah about a month at the caravan rate of about 20 to 25 miles a day. So either he signed up to go with an existing caravan carrying goods and products or uh, government officials to Nineveh, or he was provided by God, or God gave him the money to hire a caravan. And they probably, uh, they never traveled alone in these deserts in this area. For one thing, you had bandits and, and thieves, but more than that, the conditions could just be hard. You could get in sandstorms. You could be without water. You could ha uh, be lost. So everybody travel in caravans. That's why we're coming up on Christmas, and I'll, like, uh, I'll give a spoiler alert here if you don't want to know anything about Christmas. Close your ears. Uh, that we know that there were three gifts given to Jesus by the, by the Magi, the wise men, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we believe there had to be up to at least nine or more people that came. There were three gifts given but there were probably at least nine magi, wise men came, because nobody traveled in that small a group in those days, coming all the way across the desert like they did. 
And so we always, so it just doesn't go well. We dozen kings of Orient are, you know, it just doesn't work very well. So we chose to say three. But we're, I just want you to know how people traveled in this day and age was not in one, twos, or threes. They had to put a caravan together to make it. All right, we'll go on. Okay, three-day journey across Nineveh. Now, it says this was a great city, we just read, and it took three days to go across it. Now, that's a little hard to reconcile because in chapter 4, it tells us how big this city is. It says how many people are in there, some people that have been reading Jonah or pondering it. Uh, there are 120,000 people. 120,000 people. So, 120,000 people. I think Billings is about 100,000 people. Okay? I don't, it wouldn't take any of us in here three days to walk across Billings. All right? So, something doesn't quite add up here. Now, maybe the number of 120,000 is just counting the men, which was very common in those days. So, let's quadruple that to include women and at least two children per family, and there are probably many more children per family than two. So maybe we're talking 5,000, 6, 8, maybe, maybe uh, 120,000, I'm sorry, maybe almost a million people could have been. But most likely they don't see that here. They think it's about a population of 120,000. So we got possibilities. What are these possibilities? This is what the commentators and theologians that have studied Jonah uh, have speculated. It's not a three days of walking, but three days to make the prophetic announcement in all the gates, the seats of government, the temples, the markets, etc. This was a, a major commerce area. It was the largest metropolitan area there. And because of that, it would take you, when it says three days to walk across it, that's just not three days of just huffing it. You have to stop at every major place where people listen to news announcements, prophetic statements, cultural impacting things that may be happening there. They had to go to all those seats where people sat. In Israel, it was at the seat or at the, the seats near the city gates where everybody got the news, found out what was going on and where business was transacted. So maybe this city had many gates in the walls. And they went there. I don't think archaeological evidence has confirmed how many gates were there or how big this wall was. But uh, that could be what it says, three days. Another possibility, three days walk around the greater complex. So in Genesis chapter 10, way back at the beginning of the Bible, chapter 10, we have these verses. From there he, Nimrod, expanded his territory to Assyria, building the cities of Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Risen, the great city located between Nineveh and Kala. So, in Genesis 10, a descendant of Noah's named Nimrod goes and develops this territory and these cities. It looks like it was a metropolitan complex of many cities, Nineveh being one. These other three cities are mentioned there. And so maybe this was a city of a few million people. And in that case, it would take you three days to not just walk across it, but think to proclaim the word and hit the places even maybe more than three days. Or maybe with this big metropolitan complex, it would take you the whole three days if you were just walking through it. I was raised in the suburbs of Denver, Aurora, Colorado, and Denver has grown to such extent 
that it'd probably take you three days to walk across that. Think about walking across L.A., just walking, not stopping, not resting, except to eat and drink, rest a little bit, but it would take you easily three days of walking. If a person, a really in shape person, can walk 20, 25 miles a day, yeah, it's possible that a whole metropolitan area could be that big. So that, or the third one, Jonah was real, real slow. Okay, now, so I just want to cover that, cover that for you because most people that read Jonah say, three days to walk across it, and he said there's only 120,000 people in there. That doesn't make sense. And so we start to relegate Jonah again back to fairy tale, myth. Like, it's not accurate. It's not like, this isn't, this can't, this must be a legend more than a true story. But we believe it's true. We believe God put this in here to teach us lessons, and he does not lie. And so how can we explain these three days with only 120,000 people, and those are three possibilities? Obviously, the first two are more plausible than Jonah being very slow. All right, so let's go on. Uh, Ninevites may have confirmed that Jonah's message was authentic because they repented. They all of a sudden said, whoa, we're going to listen to this. We're going to put on sackcloth and ashes. We're going to fast. We're even putting our, our animals in sackcloth. I just thought of what that would be on these cold mornings when you see people walking their little dogs with, especially at Christmas time, with real red little coats on. You know, you've seen that. People put clothes on their dog. Maybe you do. Uh, I just thought, oh, yeah, I'm putting you in sackcloth, little fluffy, uh, to make you suffer along the rest of us. Okay, so... Uh, so they, why did they jump at Jonah's message? They were not Jewish. They don't serve the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're a polytheistic society. They have many gods, and mostly they're warring people that are as bad, if not worse, than all terrorists today. They had no fear of a God of judgment. Or if they did, they thought they were serving the gods by killing anybody else that stood in their way. So they responded. And so... It's speculated that they may have confirmed that Jonah's message was authentic by a confirmation from their observations of nature, the heavens, and their own priests that something big was coming their way. We can go back through celestial calendars now with the help of modern computers and recreate the alignment of the stars, the sun, the moon back in this day. We only have an approximate time of when this happened, but there is possibility, and it does look like there would have been eclipses. There would have been maybe solar eclipses, lunar eclipses. There might have been an alignment of the stars, as astrologers uh, say today, you know, the, the, the moon is in Aquarius tonight, and if you read your astrology report in the paper, it will say, this thing's going to happen to you, or good things are about to come your way, or astrologers read how the zodiac signs are aligning with the stars and with the sun and the moon. And their own prophets, if we could call them that, we'd probably call them their own astrologers, prophets may have decided that something had been happening in the culture that were warning signs and they had already been alerted that by natural things around them that something big's coming down. And we got to watch for maybe the gods are kind of trying to communicate something to us. So... That's one possibility of why they responded in such a quick way without, uh, it doesn't seem like they tortured Jonah to see if he's telling the truth. They didn't imprison him for speaking such negative thing against the people. Usually you'd take somebody like that and just cut their heads off in the street and say, I got rid of that opposition. 
but they didn't. They actually bowed a knee to this God of, of Jonas. So the pagan priests prophesied through many ways, through the movements of wildlife, just watching what's happening to, like if you said, the antelope are always on the left side of the road going to Billings, but this week they're on the right side. Something's happening. Okay, entral patterns where they sacrificed animals, like most of the tribes did around there, they would see like, oh, the liver's out of place. Or they took the entrails and they just, sorry, as gross as it, just threw them on an altar of some kind and see how it comes out. And they would prophesy through that. Very similar to people today reading tear leaves or lines on your hands, those kind of things. A lot more bloody, obviously. Um, all right, so what actually happened to the Ninevites then? First of all, we know they responded. So they re repentance. It does seem like they repentance. The Hebrew word for repent uh, in alliteration in English words uh, is shub or shub, and it means to turn. And the word repentance for us in the New Testament is metanoia, the Greek word. The Hebrew word is shub. The Greek word is metanoia, which means change and turn around. That's really what repentance is. Repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. It's actually asking forgiveness, but turning around and walking the different direction. And so they, this word is used by, in, in this, in, by the author of Jonah four times in verses 8 through 10, where it says the Ninevites shoved or shubed. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that. And that they did turn around. There was a change. Not only did they put on sackcloth and ashes, but there was a, a change in their society. There was a change in their outlook. There was a change in their behavior. Now, it'd be hard for us to get that in just reading it in the English, and that's why we're thankful for the scholars who study Hebrew and go back and read these books in the original language, and they're able to bring to us that we don't have adequate English words to maybe express and show that they really did turn around and something changed in them. So it's amazing. Even the animals were made to repent. All social and economic classes, it says from great to small, from the richest to the poorest, from the most powerful to the least powerful, from the owner of slaves to the slaves. It affected the whole culture of Nineveh. All the Assyrians seemed to be touched by Jonah's message to the point that they were convicted to repent, to do penance by putting on sackcloth and ashes, even covering their animals in some way, representing that they were as a total culture turning around, changing, because they didn't want to come under the wrath of God, because Jonah said, in 40 days, this place will be judged. All right, so why did this happen? We, I already speculated a little bit on that. Um, the previous, we talked about previous, so I didn't mention these. I talked about the stars and maybe the movement of the animals. But also, it does look in history that there were famines and plagues. I talked about eclipses already. But revolts may have paved the way. It's a question mark. So they're basically to see such a wholesale turning of an entire culture. And of course, maybe that is a giant generalization. Maybe there are pockets of people. I'm not listening to Jonah's God. I don't know who that God is. I'm not, I'm not quitting eating or drinking. But it seemed to be a decree from the king down. And if you didn't follow the king, this was a bloodthirsty society. You might have been killed. So maybe everybody did. Whether they felt like they should, they were probably made to repent. And so uh, they, uh, there's things that were happening in their culture that probably set this up. All right, let's go on to the next one. 
So repentance in Nineveh, let's talk a little bit more about that. It was definitely a humbling of the greatest military power known on earth at that time. No sign in the text that this was a move to become a part of the covenant people, Israel. So there's one thing moving, missing. It, well, a couple things missing. But there's no sign in these scriptures that they wanted to now get in covenant relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the God of Jonah, with the God he said created everything. Remember in first chapter he said, the God who's created the heavens and earth, the seas and the winds that are causing this storm is the God who I'm running from. And then the sailors there really had a conversion and even offered worship and sacrifices to God uh, on, the, on the deck of that ship when they threw Jonah in and the sea became glassy. They realized this is the God of all gods that has even creation in his power. All right? So, but there's no sign of this kind of wholesale now sacrificing to uh, the God of Jonah. And if that would have happened, would have been written because they wrote that about the pagan sailors in the first chapter that they did now start to offer sacrifice and pray and seek after a relationship with God, but not the Ninevites. So was this a revival? That's the question. You've heard of revivals. I hope you have. They've been documented historically where God's presence has come to a whole region, area, city, or people group, and in mass they have turned to the Lord. It's, we call it revival. Um, I kind of call it vival because if they've never been alive in Jesus, it can't be redone. Okay? So usually revivals speak about a Christian culture who has gone cold, a Christian culture who's lost their first love, a Christian culture kind of gotten and they've just kind of like service but not in their hearts. And their actions don't follow in what their confession of their mouth is. We call those revivals. When it comes to people who have at one time served God, went to church, whatever, and all of a sudden the churches find themselves packed. That kind of happened on 9-11. On 9-11, you couldn't find a seat in the churches in New York City at noon. They began having prayer meetings when the Twin Towers were attacked. And they... We sent a guy, I was pastoring in Des Moines, Iowa at that time. Our church took a collection to send two young men from our church to New York City to pray. And so with the day after, two days after 9-11, we gave them the money we had collected, and we said, you guys go represent our church. They didn't have jobs. They were single, or they had jobs they could leave, and they just tore off and drove nonstop to New York City. And they found people in a church to stay with, and they attended some of these prayer meetings, and they said it was a profound hush and prayer over New York City that September 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, and for a few weeks afterwards, people were crying out to God. People were packing the churches on Sundays, but the most astounding thing is almost every church in downtown New York was having noon prayer meetings, and people would forego lunch and come to pray for America. And what has happened? We haven't had a war on our soil and uh, since the Civil War, so what's, what's going on? And uh, except for uh, Pearl Harbor, and that's still offshore somewhat, part of our country. But that soon faded. So revivals can come and awaken a people who are raised in Christianity and bring them back to God. Hardly ever do we see a revival have long-lasting effects. It seems to be a spark and a flame, 
for a time, society's changed, and then as soon as things get good for people again, it begins to trail off. And we kind of go back to our own ways. Isn't that the message of the book of Judges in the Old Testament? How fickle we are. Isn't that the message of the children of Israel in the desert? God delivers them miraculously. They see the Red Sea parted. They see Moses go up and meet with God. A mountain, Mount Sinai, filled with smoke and fire. They watch him come down. His face is aglow. But they got tired of him up there. And so they built a golden calf and started worshiping something else. How quickly our hearts are won by false gods and and when we don't see or smell or, or taste God uh, in, our, in our presence, we look for something to worship that will change our situation. And so, uh, was this revival? So, but we use the word revival for even when non-Christian cultures seem to have a visitation of God and they all cry out to God. If you've never read the book Bruchko, I would highly recommend a thin book of a young 18-year-old man that flew out of Minnesota with $73 in his pocket, went to South America, and saw massive revival among the Indians in the jungle. And he observed time after time, whole villages in the middle of the night start singing out to Jesus. And he even found it hard to preach to them. But he'd pray for them. They'd listen a little bit, but they wouldn't acknowledge that they needed this God or that Jesus was their sacrifice but all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit would visit an entire tribe out in the jungle, and he'd hear them singing worship to God, and they'd get up the next day, and they'd all be Christians just by the miraculous move of the Holy Spirit. So revivals happen to Christians that have grown cold, personal revivals, cultural citywide, neighborhood, countrywide revivals, and they also happen to people who've never known God. But always it seems that God set up something. And God happened to use the Twin Towers in 2001 at 9-11 to bring a revival back to us for us to seek his face again. Um, but in the, all the time throughout most revivals, they've seen there's been famine, other natural signs, especially for animus people, they worship nature, they look for signs in nature, the entrails of animals, the, the eclipses, all of those things, that God can use those things, and he helps set it up. But in the end, revival is always caused by the Spirit of God. He always moves upon a people and comes and does great things. And so that's why some people in America today are praying nonstop for revival that he again would show up by the power of spirit and bring conviction to us. I don't know how many of you heard of the Welsh Revival. Any people heard of it in Wales? Welsh Revival, documented. Oh, I wish I could remember the year. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, 17. Okay, I can't remember. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to say about 1817. I could be way off in that thing. In southern, uh, in southern United Kingdom, or on the south uh, west part of England is the country of Wales. God came there through a preaching of a man named Roberts. He began preaching in the churches. People started packing the churches. The Spirit of God fell on Wales and had produced one of the most life-changing, cultural-altering revivals that's ever been recorded outside of this one. What happened was uh, the whole place changed. Police departments laid off all their policemen because there were no crimes. 
Bars shut down because nobody was coming to drink and self-medicate their pain away. But one of the most astounding things, Wales was known for its coal industry. London's, the, the industrial revolution that swept England and polluted the airs there was fueled by coal. And Wales had great coal mines. And so they, the, the uh, Welsh miners mined tons and tons of coal every day by hand, not with the modern machines we have now, but by pickaxe and underground with little coal oil lamps on their heads. And they would uh, do that. And what, one of the worst things that happened because of the revival was that the mules would not pull the carts of coal out of the ground on the rails out of these tunnels that, sl that sloped gradually up to the surface again after being maybe hundreds, thousands, or even a mile deep. They couldn't make the mules pull the coal because the mules did not know how to respond without curse words. True story. It's been documented. Everybody was so convicted in the Welsh revival that they quit cursing. And all the mules knew was four-letter words shouted at them, which meant, go, stop, get going. And they didn't hear that anymore. It didn't work like, come on, Sally, let's go. Didn't work. They could not get the coals out of the mine until they retrained the mules to respond to normal animal commands without harsh curse words. That was one of the greatest revivals. If you read about it, you could Google it. It's uh, an amazing, amazing revival. Now, back to this. Was this revival? Let's go on. Next one. Well, we think it stopped short of real revival because there's no circumcision recorded. There were no men lining up to say <laughs> whatever they said uh, for circumcision. <laughs> Cut it off. I don't know what they said. But uh, there, were, there was no sign of circumcision. So like when we have revivals, when we see revivals in the Welsh revival, thousands of people lining up to be baptized, which would be in a way similar to the circumcision in the Old Testament. I remember when the Jesus movement hit. My, my wife and I are a result of the Jesus movement. It's the last worldwide revival that happened. And it happened in the late 60s and early into mid-70s. And maybe many of you in here, how many people were saved in either the late 60s or early 70s? Some of you weren't even born then, but it's old people, right? All right. It was a Jesus movement. Chuck Smith, who started Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. I've seen photographs, and maybe you have too, of on Sunday afternoons, after he preached on Sunday, on the beach, baptizing thousands of people, hippies, others who are trying to find the meaning of life. And they were finding out it isn't through free love, and it isn't through dope, and it isn't through dropping out and free love. They found the answer in Jesus. Thousands lined up, so many that Chuck Smith was starting to collapse. And so he'd have to des designate other people to do these baptisms. And if you go back and look at some of those old photos, it's amazing. So the Jesus movement swept through America, and part of the sign of that was many of us turned to the Lord, many of us started packing churches, and most of us were baptized to try to follow and show the Lord. True revival. I was raised in a church, and so it was a real revival for me. I loved God. I knew Jesus, but it kind of grown cold in my life. I didn't know how to give my life to him. I didn't know how to surrender. I didn't know how to give up 
and let him come and dwell in me and that his agenda would, would triumph in me, not my agenda. So, but we don't see any of that here. In this account, the Ninevites are recorded as using the non-covenant. See, we wouldn't know this except for the scholars unless we could read it in original Hebrew. So the Ninevites are saying, we need to uh, repent before this God. And they use the name Elohim for God, which was the non-covenant God. If you were trying to just describe the God of the Jews, you would say, they, uh, that's Elohim, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's the name they used rather than using the covenant name Yahweh. That was what the Lord uses with his people Israel. So in the writing of the author of Jonah, it's saying that they turned and they put on sackcloth and ashes and they repented and turned around for Elohim. It doesn't say they turned around for Yahweh in a covenant relationship with him. They just turned around in fear of not wanting to be judged in understanding this God has power and authority. Maybe Jonah had already told them too something. We do not believe all the words that Jonah preached to them are, are, are recorded in chapter 3. All we re record is 40 more days. All we can read is 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He probably said, had to say much more than that. Maybe he even told them, I disobeyed God the first time I came here, but man, I almost died. He saved my life. So the word of the Lord came to me a second time and I'm here and telling you this is the true word of God. He preached other things about judgment and who this God is and maybe started in Genesis 1-1 and explained to them. But uh, so one good sign that this wasn't a, a revival because I know that us that came to Jesus in the Jesus movement, one thing that bothered my parents and the parents of all of us Jesus freaks was that we called him Lord. We called him by his first name, Jesus. We, we used a covenant name. Sometimes we use the word Christ, but mostly it was on us. I'm in love with Jesus, and Jesus has come to change my life. And so we kind of refer to him in this new covenant relationship and by first name basis, like we knew this God. I remember people would, I would be witnessing to people, and they go, wait, 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 wait. I'm raised in church too. What are you talking about? It's like you know him personally. That's what they actually would tell me. And I go, I do. I know him personally. So I was using, and in a covenant relationship, I was using language with people who had gone to church their whole life but only used it in kind of a generic term, the Elohim of that day. Well, there is a God, and we should be serving him, but I don't walk with him every day. I don't have that personal relationship. That's a Sunday thing, all right? So um, no, there's no record of forsaking their gods or idols or sacrifices like the sailors did or made him Lord, uh, made to be Lord. They still just called him Elohim. Most commentators say Jonah did not succeed in converting the Ninevites. He didn't convert them, and so let's go on and see what happened. So, so what's going on? Why did God relent? Why did God say, okay, I'm not going to judge you? Because the king of Nineveh understood that they were to turn away from their evil ways and violence of their hands. Because it says they were violent. Stop your violence. Turn around. Don't do this stuff to each other and to other tribes of the earth. Stop the violence. So when Nineveh turned away from their evil deeds, God gave them mercy. God was concerned about their behavior and treatment of inferior people who didn't have the military might to fight them, also the violence within their society. God is so dismayed by violence in a culture and imperialistic oppressive power that he will judge a people for social injustice 
and relent when, they when the practice is stopped and social justice rises. This is social justice, folks. This is not, we're not talking about uh, a spiritual conversion here of the Ninevites. We're talking that they changed their behavior, quit the violence of, of killing each other and of totally being the terrorists of the countryside and of that whole area, and they laid down that injustice and began to treat people with social justice. Social justice is that treating people fairly, not because they have money to buy you off, not because they're poor and you can step on them, is that all people get treated, treated as equally with respect and kindness, whether they're slave or free, rich or poor, you don't oppress people. There are equal justice in the court systems. You can't, in a, you know, even our own society, one of the most unjust, social injustices we have, if you got money to afford the best lawyer, you can get off. Where the poor person can't afford that lawyer, he'll probably get sent to crime. And so those are some of the injustices we're supposed to, as Christians, be fighting against. What is, uh, what is the picture of the lady uh, in our Capitol and the Supreme Court? She's holding some scales that shows that justice is equally balanced, but what's over her eyes? Blindfold. I don't look at your status. I don't look whether you're good looking or bad looking, where you're, where you're thin or whether you're heavy. I don't look at how much money's in your bank account or how much is gone. I, I should judge you in blindness to your social status. That is social justice, okay? And it seemed like the Ninevites turned that. Most Old Testament prophets were sent by God to address moral and social wickedness. This is what the Old Testament prophets did. They usually just did it to Israel. God is very concerned how a society treats its most vulnerable and oppressed. This is the word of God over and over in the book of, of Haggai, of Amos, Hosea, all those minor prophets that were here. Minor prophets doesn't mean they were 18 and younger, okay? It just means their books are a little shorter, okay? than Isaiah and Jeremiah. So in all of those, he's, and in Isaiah, it speaks greatly, and Jeremiah, of God's dismay for social injustice, for the treating of God, the most vulnerable in society uh, as if they're less, and violence, the usurping of people's private rights for, for no reason, and just to exert your power and dominance. And so the Ninevites stop this. All right, let's go to the next one. So, preaching God's wrath. Today, the people most concerned about social injustice do not speak about God's judgment in such practices. So right now, in our society, in America, we have a lot of people preaching against social injustice. Okay, but at the same time, they're not talking about there's a God who will judge you if you don't change how you treat others. There was, they don't never say, God's going to judge America unless we do better minorities and equal rights and immigrants and those things. They're very social justice oriented, but not so much gospel oriented that's saying there is a God who deserves to judge us, but Jesus has provided a way for us now to get in graces with God and therefore forego the judgment and begin to live out social justice for all. Okay, those who preach publicly, a lot of us, Foursquare Church is an evangelical church, by definition, one of the four things that define evangelicalism is that we share our faith. We preach that there is a God who has revealed himself and his son, and he's made a way for your sins to be forgiven and have a covenant relationship with him. So we preach publicly about repentance, but we usually do not demand justice for the oppressed. The church in America is separated. Have you ever heard of the Foursquare Hospital? 
No. We're a four-square church. We have not built a hospital. We're good at preaching the gospel, but who builds the hospitals? St. Vincent's Hospital in Billings is a part of the church that is very good at preaching social injustice and taking care of injustice. You can go to St. Vincent's Hospital run by the Catholic Church, and if you can't pay your bill, they'll find a way for it to be paid because they believe you should be treated for your health no matter whether you can afford it or not. I know the personal, uh, personally, I know the chaplains, at, they work at St. V and at Billings Clinic, what used to be called Deaconess. It had Christian roots too. Now it's called Billings Clinic. And St. V's even changed its name. Can't remember what it is lately. But uh, what they're saying is stark contrast working in those hospitals. You go to Billing, Billings Clinic and there isn't much mention of God. There isn't much prayer for patients. You go to St. V, prayer is welcome for patients. Prayer is asked to be poured out upon patients. Now, uh, I'm not telling you you should switch doctors or hospitals, okay? All I'm saying is there's Lutheran hospitals. There's Catholic hospitals. There's Methodist hospitals. There's others of what some of us have labeled the liberal part of the church, the part that quit preaching the gospel, and they're doing great social justice. They're taking care of the sick, of the infirmed, and they're feeding the poor. They're doing all the things. And then you got the evangelical church, which we is a conservative church, and we're doing a good job at preaching Jesus, but we kind of forgot about the social justice part. And if Jonah should waken any of us up, is our Christian life, this church, should be about as much preaching Jesus and eternal salvation as we should be working for the social justice in Cody, Wyoming. That we should make sure if somebody is getting oppressed by power structures here, that that stops. That if the poor aren't eating, we should feed them. That there should be outreach and things to improve our city of Cody so that it is more functioning in a holistic gospel, both the preaching of Jesus and the care of people. All right? So God's very concerned about that. Uh, Jonah did both of these things. There's better social, there better be social justice change, and they are told God's wrath is to be poured out if they do not change. We seldom see the ministries that are equally committed to preaching the word of God fearlessly, a word fearlessly, and to justice and care for the poor. Uh, I left a word out of there. Uh, we seldom see ministries that are committed to preaching the word of God fearlessly as committed to justice and care for the poor. Yet these are theologically inseparable. And I think today, I worked among colleges for the last eight years before we moved to Montana. My wife and I did. And I'll tell you, young people, are not interested in coming to churches that are not also taking care of the poor. People, the young people are saying, if there is a God, then he cares for the poor. And so a church has got to demonstrate both arms of God, the care and, and the stopping of oppression and social justice and the preaching of a gospel. What's the big shoe company that took off among young people a few years ago? Tom Shoes. I can buy a pair of shoes and somebody's going to get some shoes in a poor country. Why are young people dropping out of the church when they go to college or they get jobs and we, they may have been raised in a church like this, love, shown Jesus, and then they're 18, 19, 20, 21, they don't darken the door of a church again because they're saying, I never saw my church doing Tom's shoes stuff. I heard him preach the gospel and say we're all going to hell unless we repent, which is true, but I never saw them caring for the oppressed. And the book of Jonah says this must be 
arms of any church, and the church in America has lost a lot of our witness because we've left that to the liberal part of the church who no longer preach the gospel, but they are surely pleasing God by taking care of the poor, and we have now delegated into two camps. And really together, the whole church in America, the liberal and the conservative church, probably are doing the will of God. And so that's hard to swallow, and I out of the category of thinking, God is concerned. All right. Uh, the wrath of God against injustice, cruelty, greed, power, abuse, and oppression of the poor and powerless brings down societies, civilization, countries, and rulers. If you do not take care of the poor, the message of the Old Testament is very clear and is unescapable. Your society will collapse if you are not providing equality among all people there. We cannot see the wrath that's bringing down a country, but we can see the destruction and the crumbling of the whole countries and society. And this is what Tim Keller says. He gave a little metaphor. And we have so many fires in California right now. Maybe this is very poignant to us. He said, if the building was on fire, but you could not see the fire or the smoke, you would be confused as to why the building is collapsing. We cannot see God's wrath, but we, we may see when a society is collapsing. If we could see the fire and the wrath, it would all make sense to us. So when we see things going south in our own culture or in other countries of the world, it may be that their societies are on fire because they have lived by violence and corruption and bribery. I, I've been to Africa dozens and dozens of times and the worst thing in Africa is bribery. And the great thing about America is, I bet you you can't get a tile contract by paying somebody off so that your bid is better. Maybe you can, but as a Christian man, you're not. Because in the rest, in, in Africa, everything is bought and sold. The government office, who gets the contract, who gets the food stamps, who gets whatever. It's, it's what you have and who you know. And they've lost social justice. And Africa is in crisis. It's been on fire for a while. Why are they fleeing Africa and flooding the shores of Europe in, in desperate boats that collapse and hundreds drowned at the same time? Because society is so bad there. We just don't see the fire, but we see the results. And, I, and it's a warning to all of us if we're to pray for America that we've got to have this two-fisted approach to loving our world, the gospel punch and the taking care of the poor and social justice punch. Okay, let's go on. So let me just close with this, thoughts on cities. Cities and the heart of missions and the heart of God. This is important for us. And sitting in Koei, I'm a little, a little hesitant to share this morning, but I'm going to close with this, just knowing that you have to understand this even if we live in small rural America. That in early 1900s, about 20% of people lived in cities around the world. This is the whole world. By the 2000s, oh no, excuse me, by the 1990s, it risen to 40%. Now it's well over 50% of the entire population of the world live in cities. And by the year 2050, they're saying it's going to be 99% of all people live in cities. Where is the future of missions? It is to cities. The sending of missionaries 
in the proverbial pith helmet with the machete uh, in one hand, a chair to fight off the lion in the other, and the Bible strapped to his neck are over. We've got to become urban smart. The cities are growing massively, and they're very resistant to the gospel because it's these young people who have seen the church not take care of the poor who are moving to the cities, especially inner cities, reviving them and bringing life and commerce back to the inner cities. When I lived in Denver, downtown Denver is a place where you went to see the drunks, the prostitutes, and the drug addicts lying in the gutters. Now I can go to the same street, Larimer Street in Denver, Colorado. It is the most posh, upscale apartments and restaurants you will find anywhere in any major city. Because uh, young people have flooded down there and have revived it. And the economy is back there, but very resistant to the gospel. That's where we need to invest in missions. Now, in Jeremiah 29, 7, so let's just talk about this city of Cody. All right? This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So remember, the Babylonians came in, conquered Israel, and the Babylonians had the practice of taking the smartest, the sharpest, the brightest, the highest GPAs, the most trained, and taking them back to their own country to use them as the brain power to run the country, as slaves who had the brain power and the doctors, the lawyers, the dentists, all those people, that's what would happen today if it was done. Okay, and he said, you've been carried into exile from Jerusalem when the Babylonians conquered us, but I got a word for you. And Jeremiah is correcting some of the other prophets that said, hey, you're going to get out of here real quick. Keep your bags packed. Get ready to go. God's going to deliver you from here because Babylon is our enemy. We shouldn't live here. All right, and this is what Jeremiah, well, what God says through Jeremiah. Build houses and settle down. That doesn't sound like a temporary solution, just hang on. He's saying you're going to build houses, that takes a few years, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. In other words, you're going to raise a family in Babylon. Don't just be thinking getting out of here. I want you to occupy this place. I want you to flourish in this place. I want you to be light and salt in this place. I want you to be Christians here in our vernacular. And that's what he's telling all of us that live in Cody. Give him marriage, son and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. And then he says these incredible words. Also, not only do these physical things and settle down and say we're here to make this city better even though it's our enemy. That would be like us being sent to Afghanistan and say this is where you're going to raise your family now in Kabul. I want you to buy a house, I want you to plant gardens, I want you to give your kids in marriage, you're going to have children here and grandchildren, you're going to settle down and, and occupy this place in the name of Christ for me. But he says, now, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So really, in the bottom line is, God's asked you, the Christians of Cody, to work for the peace and the prosperity of this city. That includes decreasing the social injustice and increasing the social justice quotient. It means preaching the gospel. It means telling people there is a God that if you die in your sins, you will not live for eternity in his presence. And there is a way God has made for forgiveness of your sins and that his life can dwell in you. And you can become part of the royal priesthood, those that serve and worship God. And so he's asking this church, I believe, 
in from Jeremiah 29.7 and from, and from studying Nineveh and, the, and what happened there that, and how God judges places with social injustice, he's asking churches that you have two hands. I said fists. That, that wasn't such a great way before. That you have hands that you say, we preach the gospel. We preach that there is a God we will all answer to, but he has sent his son at great price to himself to give us grace. But we're also here to show the people of Cody that we care for the oppressed, the poor, the weak, and those that the power structure steps on. And I, if I'm offending you a little bit, if this sounds a little strange, I can't apologize for it because I also fail at this all the time. I have to become more involved in Billings. I have to become more involved there. I need to be a volunteer. I need to work at the schools. I need to. I met one of our parishioners who works at the school today. He's doing hooky. Uh, I met him as I got something really quick to eat when I got to town this morning because without a wife, I had nobody to cook for me this morning, so I just, okay. So he said, sorry, I won't be there, Pastor. Can you show me your slides? And so I showed them to him real quick. But he works at the school, and he said, I love working and helping people there, but it doesn't pay the bills. So I'm torn. Can I stay to work there or not? So many of us work to pay the bills, but then our real calling is to work for the seek, well, to seek, the peace and the prosperity of Cody, Wyoming, to pray for it because our own destiny and welfare is tied up in it because God says at the end of that, because if Cody prospers, you too will prosper. You will prosper. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for chapter 3 of Jonah. That, Lord, for watching the Ninevites just stop their violent ways how you And they didn't even really turn to you with their hearts full, full-hearted to worship you or to be circumcised or say, we want to now be known as the, uh, like the children of Israel. But they just stopped their social injustice. They stopped their violence. And Lord, we know it was only temporary for them too. They returned to it and were judged hundreds of years later for all they did. But Lord, I pray for us in this room, those that call upon you as our Lord, that we are about all of the gospel, that, Lord, we are not only preaching Jesus, but we're sponsoring children overseas. We're helping the orphans and the widows in this town. We're funding missionaries to go to cities around the world, that, Lord, we are working for the peace and the prosperity of Cody, Wyoming, that, Lord, if there is a group of people could be individual families, it could be a whole people group defined by ethnic or racial delineation who are receiving the short end of the stick in Cody. Lord, lay it on our hearts to help them, to serve them. And the holidays are coming, Lord. If there's something this church can do to help alleviate those that may not eat well, and maybe that's well taken care of in Cody, Lord. I don't know the social... Uh, and food security system of Cody. And maybe there will not be one family that doesn't put a turkey on the table in a few Thursdays. But Lord, if there's anyone we can help, may that be known. And Lord, as we do the Christmas shoeboxes, we're also caring about these children who have nothing, that Lord, we may bless them. We thank you, Lord. Change our hearts, alter us. May we be people that please you on our right and our left hand. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.